can give us the talk. So for everybody who is joining us, um, you're in the Entrepreneur and Leaders Club, the room sponsored by Big Doug. Our sponsor will be along shortly. Um, and this is the Women in Construction Room. Today we're talking about are you biased and conscious and unconscious bias. Uh, Dr. Nashta is our guest speaker. So um, click on her face and go through to her profile, see what she's saying. Um, and we will go around and do some intros. So over to you, Hayley. Hi, everybody. Um, nice to see you all again. My name's Hayley. Um, I have a couple of businesses in the construction industry. I've been doing that for about 11 years now. Um, absolutely love it. And obviously very passionate about helping women into construction, attraction and retention. Um, so yeah, love doing this every week. I'm looking forward to um, getting a psychologist view on what this is all about as well. Over to you, Carol. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Carol Massey. Absolutely love being in this room every week. Um, my background is construction, been in construction, working in an organisation from 18 years old and moving into technology and that's where my passion lies. Like Hayley and Michaela, very much about bringing women in construction and the skills and the diversity of what we can deliver. Um, love this room and um, yeah, looking forward to Dr Nashaton and hearing what you have to say. And speaking, over to you. Hello, everybody. I was going to say morning then. It's not. It's afternoon. Hello, everyone. I'm Luke. I'm from Head of Marketing from Big Doug. We are the very proud sponsor of this room. We love these this this room. We love these guys. Michaela, Haley, everybody. We love you. Um, yeah, we're the business solution specialists. We are the biggest online retailer of workplace products. Um, and of course, we are supporting women in construction. Yes, thanks, Luke. And do you want to do an intro? Hi everybody, my name's Anne O'Caffer and I'm a construction planner based in Scotland. Um, I also volunteer with the Chartered Institute of Building and their Young Professionals Group, Tomorrow's Leaders, to encourage new and young professionals to come through um, into the industry and to work towards chartership. And I also volunteer a number of different roles um, to you know, um, inform young people about the industry and to show them the benefits of that. Um, done speaking. Thanks, Anne. Lovely stuff. Um, ben, welcome. Do you want to do um, an intro? Sure. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Ben Keenan. Uh, I'm a director of Multiplex uh, and a developer in my own right. Um, and uh, like everybody else, I'm pretty passionate about uh, women in construction and I love this room uh, and all the sharing that goes. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Dean, I, I know you was uh, out and about. Oh, you're there. Do you want to I'm, go in? I am, yeah, just about to transition into a car in a moment. Um, Dean Kelly, so I work in the field of recruitment. I've built and sold a few businesses, but I have an education platform that uh, works with EDI, so equity, diversity, and inclusion. We blind processes, we degenderize adverts. And uh, so, yeah, I've got a big interest in bias. I've done a lot of work in behavioural science. I've worked with the Behavioural Insights team. They're the, the, the nutters that work with Sage at the moment. So, yeah, really interested in hearing more about what's, uh, what Are You Biased is about today. Yes, thanks, Dean. Lovely stuff. Um, okay, Hayley, what are you saying? I just want to go straight into... Um background first of all for Dr Nashita um so we can then start picking your brains do you want to give us your kind of brief intro and then we can get going from there if everyone's happy to get going sounds good to me do you want me to jump in there Michaela Haley? 
yeah take it away yeah okay um yeah i'm dr nashita dow solheim what a mouthful that is i am british you can probably tell by my accent born and bred in the uk now living in norway and i'm a clinical and forensic psychologist by background and what that really means is that i've worked with people who have had mental health issues but at the extreme end of the spectrum i was interested in working with those people have very challenging personalities, psychopaths in maximum security. Those of you who are British will have heard of Broadmoor. That's where I worked for many years. And that's where I did my training on working with people with those kinds of personality traits. I then worked with the Ministry of Defence in the UK. And I was involved then with working with serving military coming back from war zones and peacekeeping, peacekeeping activities. And we were involved in post-traumatic stress disorder treatment, for example, and head injury assessment and brain disease assessment. You can imagine the military were exposed to all kinds of life-threatening situations, sometimes getting injured, and we were there to assess how much of their cognitive function or brain function, the software of your brain, how much of that was affected. And I eventually then moved to Norway and became an executive coach. The red thread, or the common thread, I think is in English, red is Norwegian. The common thread in all of that is the toolkit that I learned in working with those very challenging people, the psychopaths in maximum security, working with people who face very challenging situations like the military. I found those skills that I'd learned in building relationships, rapport, understanding other people who are different to yourself, and moving the needle with people who are resistant to change. All those skills I found myself using as a leader when I became a corporate leader in a huge oil and gas company here uh, in Norway. And those skills were essential to my leadership. And I eventually then decided that these were the skills I also wanted to help other leaders to learn. So I now share my toolkit with leaders in how they can have impact through the psychology of influence and negotiation. So are you biased for me is at the heart of psychology. It's the heart of how we think and how those thinking processes show up every day at work and impact the work that you do and essentially the results that you get in your business. So I hope that's a helpful intro there, Hayley. No, I absolutely love that. I think my most basic question, right, is are people who are sexist in either way, have they got mental health issues, do we think? Oh, I love that question. Straight in there, Hayley. Fantastic. <laughs> That's great. You I'm know, like, there must be a problem with these people. <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to start with saying we all have biases. You know, are you biased? Uh, the quick answer to that question in the shortest route would be yes, we all are, because essentially our biases come from our experiences, our upbringing, our, our values, our culture. Let's go into that a little bit later. But are people who are sexist mentally unwell? No would be the first answer. Being sexist in itself doesn't make you um, necessarily mentally unwell or mentally ill. But I would certainly say that having one of those biases, whether it's for sexism or ageism or racism or whatever the ism is, then you are certainly drawing on your own experiences in your background, your own belief systems, your own uh, personality characteristics are actually showing up and that's what's making you sexist but that it makes you mentally ill no Hayley I'm gonna have to say no to that one yeah I think I kind of knew but I just wanted something to be able to go oh I'm really sorry you're unwell and try and understand try and understand you need yeah. treatment you need to go and see a doctor and get that sorted and then you'll <laughs> yeah. yeah so I suppose then I want to ask you where we see um businesses or companies who are you know female dominated or male dominated does bias then come in um herd 
culture, I suppose? Does it come because you are surrounded by that and that then becomes trained or is it definitely still down to an individual level? What a brilliant question. It's yes to both. So what happens when we see, for example, we're talking about not necessarily construction here and I work in a, or have worked in oil and gas, which is not dissimilar to construction in lots of ways because you have a, a whole range of of people coming in from different backgrounds and different experiences and a lot of, you know, um, skilled and unskilled workers, we, we, we would call it. But what I would say is it always starts with the individual. Your personal experiences and beliefs and values are what create your biases. So my biases, I have developed them through my family culture, the school culture I grew up in, the experiences I've had, some of it's to do with my personality. That's what gives me my, my bias footprint, if you like. But then I go and work in an organization where perhaps the culture is very strongly biased towards, for example, men. You know, only men can lead. Only men are able to reach top positions. We value the male characteristics in those positions. So no matter how much I might disagree with that, it might be very hard for me to have a voice and change that culture. So I'm going to do one of two things. I'm going to either live with it and become very stressed that it doesn't fit with you know, my, my way of thinking, or I'm likely to leave because my ability to change a culture where everybody believes collectively something that I don't is going to be very hard to shift for me. So what happens, Hayley, to your question is it starts with the individual, but the more I hang out with people who are like me, so those people who hang out together, who share those same beliefs and have those same biases, they're going to create a culture around them. And that's just going to get stronger the more they add to that of the same, same minded people. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I know I'm being a Mike Hogger. I'm going to apologise to everyone. And it is my last question on this kind of topic before I hand over. But from saying that then and saying that, you know, you either put up with it and get really stressed or obviously you would leave. Bringing this back then to, from our point of view, from women in construction, do you believe that that is possibly a reason why we have such a, a low retention in the industry for keeping women once we've gone through the hard work of attracting them? For sure. And it, not just in construction, but definitely in industries where it's male dominated at the top. And especially if the culture of that male dominant, because we, we should separate the idea that male dominated cultures are always sexist. They're not. Um, but typically we're going to see that where there is a domination of men in senior leader, leadership positions, they're going to have a culture between themselves, a language between themselves, a belief system between themselves on how they want to engage, you know, where, what time they hold their meetings, whether they spend their weekends together in certain activities, all of those slightly unconscious biases, you know, we're all going to get together down the pub, we're all going to play golf on Sunday, and that's where we're going to have the real conversations about what's going on at work. That does exclude women. So there is a challenge for women who join these cultures to either get on board and follow suit and get involved in those kinds of activities. I've got to be available for drinks on a Friday night, even if I've got the kids, you know, I don't play golf, but you know, how do I then infiltrate those kinds of activities? It does mean that you'll put a pressure on them to leave because they can't join in. And so, you know, and I know this whole diversity and inclusion can feel a bit foo-foo for a lot of people, but the idea of being inclusive is trying to create arenas. And it's not just about men and women then, Hayley. It's actually about inclusive in lots of ways, which is how can we create a working environment that allows people to feel they can join in? And we're not picking, unconsciously picking ways of working or arenas for conversations that exclude certain people. 
So I do think it's a retention issue um, for male dominated cultures where they begin to, without consciousness, behave in ways that only suit ma- typically the male um, uh, culture. Yeah, it, make, it, it, it makes a lot of sense when you say it. It still doesn't make me feel good about it, but I, I suppose I can understand it more. And then from looking at women who I've seen, you know, years previous who have gone to board level and you kind of almost see them take on the mentality of men to kind of sit at board level and be able to be accepted and be involved. And then they go, I'm not going to let any more women up. I, I'm going to have to push them down to keep this seat. And it's it's awful to see, but I can kind of understand why it happens when yeah. you... I mean, you know, I love that you raise that, the idea that we start to behave a bit like the expectations we see around us. So if I'm going to try and join an organisation where I see that male characteristics in leadership, if we can call them that, you know, or or you need to look and sound like, you know, a 40, 50-year-old man to be able to get a seat at the top table, then even without my very conscious intention, I might start to mimic those behaviours because I see that they get rewarded. The performance rewards in the system are, you know, you need to be aggressive, you need to go out there and get the results, you need to rock up in a suit, you need to, you know, know how to take control of a situation. Those kinds of more what are associated, they're not exclusive to men, I'm not saying that, but they are associated with with male leadership. That's what women then feel often that they have to mimic to get to the top. And then the big challenge, Hayley, you've just pointed out to, there are so few seats at the top table when you do get there that you've got to fight to keep your seat. And so allowing other women, you know, this is what happens where women become very competitive with each other is there's only the room for one or two women at this table. I better keep mine. I better make sure that they're not going to have six women. They'd never allow that. So there's only a limited number of seats. It's musical chairs. I'm going to try and fight for mine. Whereas if we saw many more seats at the top table, we would see less of that cutthroat competition for keeping your seat and keeping other people down. Yeah, it's like the idea of a diverse board just gives so many different options and then you have different thought processes and people from different backgrounds bring in different, you know, bits of information in and culture and life and you think a diverse board makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> to make... it more than makes sense, Hayley. Love that you've said that. More than makes sense. I've got the research. Anybody's interested, I can send it to you. There is evidence concrete factual research-based data to show that the profitability of companies is greater when they have diversity in their boards, more so than in the management teams, but in the boards themselves. Tons of research coming out of Harvard Business Review and lots of things like that, but I won't bore you with that now. But there is I'd love to see it though, if we could get hold of that, that that would be amazing. Yeah, so I'm going to, um, I'm going to pass down to you, Carol, I'm just going to go in in a line. Um, I'm just asking I know. No. <laughs> <laughs> let me, let me, let me. <laughs> I mean, it's like, sorry. I mean, I'll, I'll pass it on to everybody else in a moment. Sorry. I, I have two questions, actually. I wondered, how do you know if you're biased? If you don't, if it's like an unconscious thing? Like, how would I, I, I like to think that I'm not, but surely I am. But how will I ever know? Brilliant. 
first of all, you are, Michaela, because you're as human as everybody else. Um, I'm biased, you're biased, we're all biased. The question is, what are those biases and how are they showing up? Yes, yeah, some biases are positive biases, right? I'm biased towards helping the underdog. That's not a bad thing, is it? You know, helping people out and having a charitable bias, for example. But the biases we're talking about in this context is those biases that get in our way and affect our relationships or affect the business in a negative way. So let's let's stick to that particular area. And then how do I know I have them? One of the things that you can do, and we are not very good at doing, is looking at where we keep repeating the same behavior and it's not working for us or it's not working for the company. And how do we know that it's not working? Well, you might be getting feedback from other people. You might be getting poor results. You might be seeing a lot of people leaving your team. You don't get to kind of keep your team. When you're recruiting, you might feel, you know what, I'm, I, everybody is a bit like me around this table. How is, how is that happening? How do I keep hiring people like me and I'm not getting the diversity? That's when there's an opportunity to have a red flag moment with yourself and ask yourself, if I keep repeating the same behavior and getting the same results that aren't helpful or they're creating problems, there's a bias. Then the question is, well, how do I find out what the bias is? So I would then turn to getting real feedback. Now, it's no good, and I will challenge anybody on this, asking your nearest, dearest for feedback about uh, what you're really like and where your biases lie, because to two reasons. One is they will also always filter it a little bit if they really love you and they'll want to be kind. And secondly, they don't get to see you in all your glory in the work environment. So what you really need is more objective feedback on what you might be doing. One way is to make sure you make decisions with a group of other people when it's key decisions. So you don't recruit somebody on your own. You have a couple of other people where you can say, you know, what, what do you think about us hiring this candidate, for example? If there was a man and a woman on the on the option in the options why are we not choosing the woman why am i not leaning towards hiring the woman in this case you know help me out help me to reflect on what might be showing up for me am i showing a preference or a bias for a particular characteristic or association with a particular school for example or company they've worked for so keeping other people around you to brainstorm with is very important who have different ideas to yourself so michaela the short question is we are all biased. Not all biases are bad biases, but the bad, bad biases show up when we keep getting poor results and poor relationships. And then getting feedback is critical, but get it from people who would dare to give you that honest feedback. Yeah, lovely. Thanks for that. And my second thing is, I work with loads of my clients, uh, just it's all men on the workforce, or they may have one or two women. And when I say to them, like, where's all the women? They say, and constantly, I just get the best people for the job. And I'm like, how is it always men are the best people for the job? At some point, that sentence is just nonsense because I'm just not having that so many men are better than women at construction. I just cannot believe it. So how do I approach that without sounding like a knob? Because I can be a bit aggressive um, slash passionate when it comes to women in construction. Oh, we could do a masterclass on this, Michaela. I love that. <laughs> so what, we, what, what happens is that's a huge, typical, typically a bias is a stereotype in, the, in, this, in what you're referring to. You know, all men make better leaders. All men are better in construction. All women are empathic. All women make better carers. Massive generalizations. And we'll always find an exception to those rules because they are based on huge stereotypes. 
the easiest way to get beyond that is to go back down to what are the skills and competencies that we're looking for, ir irrespective of the, the gender. So if people are saying men make better construction workers or better leaders in construction, say, I would say that to them, so what are the skills that you identify that they have? Share that with me. Let's drill down a little bit. What are the skills and competencies they show that you think make them effective, not more effective, effective? And then just take that and go further and say, okay, I can show you that I have those skills or X person has those skills and they happen to be a woman. Let's have a focus on the skills and competencies. There is certainly a lot of research, again, Michaela, I can share with you another time that shows where when we have even in very male dominated industries, a, a better distribution of gender in key, very technical positions or very operational positions, we can still see that productivity and profitability goes up. And you'll see across the world in Fortune 100 companies that where they have senior executives, sometimes CEOs at the top table, it has it doesn't have a negative effect on the on the profitability of the company. Quite the opposite. It's something that's seen as an, a, a value add. So challenge them on competencies and skills. You can strip it right down and say, so tell me what it is that this this guy or these guys are doing and let me see what it really is. And let's break it down. Yes, I love that. Um, yeah, thanks. Um, what, do you know what? I'm just going to do a bit of a reset because we're going to open it up to everybody else in the room because me and Hayley have been hogging your attention. So you're in the Entrepreneurs and Leaders Club. If you give the little greenhouse a, a follow, then there's all kinds of rooms going on in here throughout the week. This is the Women in Construction Room, which is sponsored by Big Dog. And Luke on the second row is the representative from there. So if you click on them, go through to the website, see what they do. But they basically provide everything for businesses. I have to change my strap line for Big Dog and I forgot what it is, so apologies, Luke. <laughs> but they do like stationery and Don't worry, <laughs> we changed it, didn't we? So we were the shelving records in storage specialists, but now we have over 32,000 products. I sound like a radio advert. If you need something for your business, just come to Big Dog. We sell everything. That's basically us. Complete business solutions. Woohoo! Oh, there you go. Also, I'm Look, literally I'm... engrossed in this. Like, I'm literally sat here in an armchair, not doing any other work. Just sat here, just like mesmerized by this so far. Yeah, this is good chat. So, and again, Can today I... we're talking. Oops, sorry, Carol. Sorry, I just wanted to jump in before it gets really, really, really noisy. Sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, we're talking about how you buy So, anybody else in the audience, if you want to come up and ask Dr. Nash Turr some questions, just raise your hand. It's really open panel. And then I'm going to be looking around the room for everybody who's on stage, um, starting with Carol. Thanks, Michaela. Dr. Nash, it's a brilliant, uh, you know, just from what you're, you know, you've, you've said in the last, you know, 10, 15 minutes, it's absolutely amazing. Question for me is... Um, from a personal perspective, you know, you mentioned that you've you've done some work at, in Broadmoor and you know for the the military. One of the things that you know we spoke in a, a, another room that we we ran on a Wednesday was about the skill shortages and, and getting people from um, different areas of, of of life and work into the construction sector to 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 enable to deal with the skills gap. What sort of challenges, you know, from the people that you've met? you know, coming out of, you know, you know, from war-torn areas and, and how, how, how have you managed to deal with their mindsets in terms of getting them back into the real world? 
great question, Carol. You know what? I particularly love that question is because I often don't get asked that. I actually get asked a lot about what they went through and how they coped with it. But we worked hugely in rehabilitation and getting people, you know, veterans who weren't able to stay in the military into um, working life again, into whatever a normal life might look like. And one of the biggest challenges they had was well, two challenges. The biggest challenge was nobody understands where I've come from. My experiences have been so unique. I don't know how to explain to them in the, in the civilian world what I've, I don't know how to transfer those skills. I don't know how to tell them what I've done so that it can be useful in another environment. So transfer of skills has been one of the biggest challenges. And then, of course, you know, there is, for those people, a, a challenge with adapting to that way of life it's very different to the life they've come from and the experiences that they had and always feeling a little bit on the outside you know because as anybody who's been in the military will tell you that you become part of a a very tight knit um, closed culture really because only people who've been through those experiences will understand each other and so it can feel quite lonely when they go back into civilian life um, unless they're with other veterans who've experienced similar things so we worked with them on two levels one was how to write your CV. It's very concrete, Carol, very, very simple, but very important work. How to rewrite your CV that extracts the skills that you learned in military life, for example, in such a way that you can describe it so that it fits the job you're applying for. Let me give you an example. You know, somebody who was in the Royal Engineers, working a lot with artillery, for example, Well, that sounds very military, doesn't it? It's very hard to imagine what I'm going to do with somebody, you know, if they come into the construction industry. But actually, when you look at their CV and you break it down in discussion, so what were you actually doing? Not concretely in in terms of the exercises, but what skills were you using? So you had to be very uh, planned. You had to have very good Uh, planning skills, preparation skills, you had to be very precise, you had very good execution skills, sometimes they were leaders of of troops, so they can demonstrate leadership capacity. And once you start to get into how they did their job, rather than what they were doing, you start to see the transferability of those skills. And that is the access then to getting into other jobs. And more often than not, they were able to redesign their CVs and be able to get in front of interviewers. Um, Typically in the security industry is a big thing. You see a lot of um, ex-military going into the security industry. But certainly also construction, because they're able to describe a lot of the skills and competencies they were trained in, in such a way that you would hire them without knowing they had been in the military if you read those skills on their on their CV. Does that answer your question, Carol? Oh, yes, it does. Absolutely does. And it's one of the things that, you know, we're, we're, we're talking at bringing people from all different straits of life. We know that, you know, come the end of this month, you know, furlough schemes is going to come to an end and there's going to be lots of people, you know, not knowing where to turn and some of them, you know, maybe going through mental health issues and just feeling, you know, where do I turn? So, you know, just in terms of what you've said for the military and, and getting them, you know, looking at, you know, they've got great skill, they've, they've got great structure because they've had to have great structure and discipline on being the front line. So, no, that really has helped. Thank you ever so much. You're welcome, Carol. Can I just make another suggestion that it would be really helpful to... Michael, can you just can you just hold fire a moment, please? Dr Nashita, can you follow on? Sorry, I was just going to say, to, uh, Carol, that one of the things I would, just as a tip, would be when regardless of you know we focused on the military here but let's broaden the conversation too when we're bringing in people from 
areas of life or industries that don't match the one we're hiring into, you know, whether that's construction or something else, then asking open questions around how did you, what, what kind of um, uh, skills did you use to deliver that project? Not what project did you deliver? How did you achieve those results? What were your experiences working in a team? Have you ever had to be responsible for delivering a task or a project which will access the leadership? So simplifying the questions, I think, helps people where they can't articulate it. And many of these people won't be able to. They're not used to writing CVs and making job applications. They won't even have interview experience. So we lose, we are biased if we make the threshold for interviews so high that people almost need to be professional interviewees to even get through the door. And so I'm a great believer that we need to get better at lowering that threshold for a conversation in an interview so that we're not reliant on brilliant CV writing and brilliant, you know, well-rehearsed answers to great questions. But we're just very human in helping that other person to say who they are and what they know so that we can hire them if they're the right person for the job. And would you say, Dr Nashita, you know, you mentioned the very much about a CV and I'm very much about, you know, you can... You can get things out of a CV, but sometimes people get other people to write the CV. Are you, would you think that, you know, engage, the way we engage and, um, you know, advertise roles that are more face-to-face -face video just to get to get to know a person better and structuring the questions is the way things should be going forward rather than, you know, the, the CV that lands on the desk might not have the right name that, you know, people think, oh, no, they can't do the joke, you know. Would, you know, face-to-face -face help in terms of how you, you know, bring people in? It's, you know, I ran a massive session on this this week about how bias shows up in recruitment. So it's a bigger topic, Carol, but what we found was that where you have, there's name bias, there's picture bias, there's attractiveness bias. Um, there's certainly um, biases around length of time having done jobs. If you remove all of those characteristics or, or you know, categories from your CV, when you're sifting through applications and all you've got is what are the skills and competencies and areas of work this person has had, then you're not get, you're going to be less biased in picking the right person based on these other, you know, ideas about whether they, they look like they're going to fit in or their name sounds like they're foreign, for example, and you're going to wonder about their culture. So, Face-to-face, -face, it starts with the sifting process. So when you're sifting, you need to remove all possible biases by eliminating bias-type data. And then secondly, face-to-face -face is always better, but there is a whole psychology, Carol, which I'd love to talk to you about another time, around whether it's better to be face-to-face -face and how you set up a room. Typically, we set up rooms in a really unhelpful way to get the best out of people, and there's a whole psychology to that too. But Face-to-face -face is always preferable to screen because people are very uncomfortable on the screens and you can get a much better feel and create a more comfortable atmosphere if you're conscious about the psychology of the room um, so you get the best out of them. That's lovely. Thanks, Dr Nashita. And I'll um, hand over because I can talk about this subject for a long time, but I know that there's more people coming in the room. I think Am it's I happy Anne to... next. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. May I donate 50,000 US to Carol's cause? Michael, if you wouldn't mind just waiting till we come to you so we can get through the stage, that'd be great. Thank you. She won't take a 50,000 US donation to her you could you, you could probably send her a message about that, but thank you. Oh, I just kept jumping in there, though. Um, okay. I'll take a 50,000 donation. I'll take it. I'm trying to keep it professional, guys, if you wouldn't mind. 
you know, she's on today, Ayla. Yeah. Over to you, Anne. Okay, I have a question for Dr. Nashter. Hi, um, what I what I wondered is um, sometimes um, we are subjected to biases so much that maybe we start to believe that story. Um, and I was just wondering how we can firstly unlearn those stories that we tell ourselves and how we can unlearn um, biases that we have for ourselves and as well as the ones that we've almost had imposed upon us. How we can be better, I guess, how we can move forward from them. Thank you, Anne. You know, you're tapping into something there that we've, we've not actually talked about, which is where are our biases coming from and, you know, how do we know we still have them today? And one of the, the things that I say to people is, you know, we've grown up with our biases more often than not. We may have gathered a few as well en route uh, through life, but we certainly got some of them um, given to us. And how do we know we have them? One of the things I say is when you find yourself, let's say we're all as adults now, when we find ourselves wondering what our biases are today, we need to look to uh, go back, you know, I'm a psychologist, so I'm going to be interested in this, which is go back to your childhood and think about the culture you grew up in whatever that was, whether it's a, you had a family or you grew up in, in another system. But think about the beliefs and attitudes that you were exposed to and how they showed up in your childhood. And then fast forward to today and ask yourself the question, which of those beliefs and attitudes that I was exposed to while I was growing up do I still believe are helpful for me today? And which ones am I carrying unchecked i haven't even really noticed that i i carry that around and i make those judgments about people but i haven't really thought about the fact that maybe i don't believe that anymore or i don't feel that's correct anymore but it's just come along for the ride it's almost like we have a backpack of these attitudes and beliefs about the world around us that we've and we keep adding in as we as we're getting older but it's only really when we get to a certain stage in life where we take that backpack off, open it up, perhaps because somebody's pointed at something in us or we've we've tripped over ourselves in a conversation and found ourselves saying something inappropriate or offensive or, or felt offended, that we open it up and say, oh, I didn't realise that that comes from when I was younger and I remember that was instilled in me, that that was you know the way I should think. But I don't know that I want to carry that around anymore and I want to have a look at it again. And the best way to know which ones you want to get rid of are the ones which create an emotional reaction in you. If you feel very provoked about something, it's very likely that either somebody else's bias has triggered you or you have a bias that's been triggered. And so when you get a strong emotional reaction, have a look and do that, do that exercise for yourself. What have I got in my backpack that I probably haven't paid attention to? And do I need to keep it and then let it go? We make a lot of choices, Anne, in life based on some of those things we've carried with us without realizing that's what we're basing it on. You know, we talk about female intuition. Female intuition for me is intuition in general. Men have it, women have it. But intuition is hard data. It's the stuff we learned as kids that we respond to so quickly, we can't even catch the data that those beliefs and attitudes we're making that decision on. And so now we call it intuition because it happens like the, you know, the click of a finger. But if we can slow down and think about, oh, when I got that gut feeling, what actually did I see? What was I paying attention to? And that's the data we want to respond to. Then we can find out whether our bias was in play. This is so How good. 
Yeah, I mean, that that's great. Um, I know, certainly from my own background, um, it, it, it shows up, you know, and, and sometimes it's a positive thing, you know, I'm more positive. I show um, favour towards people who have similar background to me or similar, um, um, you know, story um, where they've maybe overcome a challenge. Um, and, you know, I try to help those people. So, it, you know, it, it, it works in both ways, um, but I'm keen to um, know how I can be better um, where I can be. So thank you for that. Thank you, Anne. I'll just share a short story if I can. Um, well, it's not a story, actually. It's a, it really helps you to understand where why we are so quick you know in our thinking when it comes to biases so there's a great Israeli psychologist called Daniel Kahneman and he basically talks about the two systems in our brains system one and system two and the reason I'm showing this is this in system one it's the it's the immediate reactions and thoughts we have they're very unconscious we don't even realize you know if you've driven a car and you've suddenly found yourself arriving at your destination and you can't really remember the journey and you can't remember how you got there. And you're like, oh, how did that happen? That's your system one. That's the, that kind of very quick automatic thinking that just knows what it needs to do, how to drive the car and where to go. And then system two is where you, you, you really dig deep into thinking. I need to think something through. I need to make a plan. I'm going to sit down and really pour over the pros and cons of something. That's our system two. That's conscious very conscious thinking. The reason I want to share that is kids, for those of you who've got children or remember your own childhood very well, children are much better than we are and we grow out of this because we coach ourselves out of this. They're much better at handling the intention behavior that meaning they are better at, at responding to their intuition than we are as adults. If you've ever seen a child have a strong reaction to someone, and maybe you've seen, you've introduced them to somebody and then the child you know, goes, oh no, you don't particularly like that person. What they're responding to is, they've seen a gap between what they're hearing the person saying and what's showing up in the body language. They can sense the gap and they are reacting quite quickly to it. What we do as adults, you know, when we get that gut feeling that something isn't right or somebody isn't right, we close that gap instead of going, oh, I know there's something not right there and maybe I should pay attention to it and figure out why I'm not happy, what's the bias for me or for them. We close it by going, oh, well, you know, at least he looks like he's a professional, so I'll, I'll skip over that feeling. I must be the one wrong or, you know, well, clearly she's a mother, so I'll just ignore that feeling because she can't be a mother and, and be, you know, the, the kind of person I, I was worried she was. We close the gap with all our adult rationalizations and we ignore the data. So I wanted to add that in and that one of the things when you get that gut feeling is to widen that gap that you're feeling and dig into it and really pay attention to the data you're getting. Is what the person is saying and doing aligned or not can often help you to understand what you're dealing with. Thank you. This is absolutely amazing. I feel like I, I want to just sit with you for hours, Dr. Nashita, but I'm going to have to hand it over to somebody else because I'm Hogging again. Um, Luke, would you have you got some questions? Are you there, Luke? I'm here, sorry, I couldn't unmute. Um, I don't have any questions. I'm just sat here just taking all of this in. It's it's amazing. I probably would have. Um, but yeah, I think it's just no, I'm gonna hand over to somebody else. <laughs> that's fine. So what we know from Luke is he's indecisive, so that's good to know. Um Ben, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Have you got some questions? 
Yeah, I, mean, I find all this stuff really fascinating and um, uh, and sort of having been in corporates, I recognise a lot of, um, of what we're talking about. Um, you know, in terms of, I guess it's sort of institutionalised bias. So we, we, we all, I think we all come to the view after a while as you spend time in, in a corporation that how things have always been is how they should be. And so when you are assessing people, you know, potentially to come into the business, you're measuring them, measuring them up against all of the sort of historical yardsticks. We need a construction manager. We need a package manager. We need a design manager who fits this criteria as we've always seen it. Um, and, and what um, uh, and what Dr. Nashita is talking about is actually questioning those benchmarks and saying, in reality, what we're looking for is leadership. In, where, in reality, we're looking for people who can inspire teams, who can work well with others, who are, who are organized and so on. I think what I've found is it's so hard to get businesses to question those ingrained narratives. It's also difficult because, um, you know, we're providing a service to clients and they expect to see people with certain CVs. And, you know, if, if, if we're appointing a project director for a high-rise tower, they're going to want to see that that person has built a high-rise tower. So the industry kind of reinforces a lot of these stereotypes, which is really difficult. But, you know, I'm, I'm with you every step of the way. I, I think if we can start to question those assumptions and benchmarks and just look at the real underlying skills and traits, the industry will be so much better for it. I love that. Thank you. And Ben, could I add to that, that, you know, one of the things we see uh, in oil and gas, which I said is not dissimilar to the construction industry with, you know, a lot of um, blue collar workers, is that they're moving towards getting very concrete and explicit about some of these, let's call generalizations or biases they have. So instead of saying, you know, does this person fit our culture? What is culture? And you can actually concretely in a very data specific way measure culture, by the way. Because what happens is we end up putting all these fluffy terms into culture. Uh, male dominated is actually a, a generalization. It may be male dominated doesn't mean that that's all negative in, in the, the content of the males who were there. But we need to be very specific on what kind of culture are we hiring to? Let's be concrete about that. The other thing to do is when we're hiring is to insist on the diverse pool to begin with. You know, if we're not searching for a range of people who could be project managers of that high rise tower and we're only hiring men because we only think men are capable of it or only men are likely to have done it, then we're already letting the bias dictate what the culture is going to become. So I love that you've raised that. I think the, not just challenging the assumptions, but actually doing something about the assumptions, you know, insist that there is a 50 percent, you know, uh, profile of the applications that you get in of gender so there's 50 women and you know 50 percent women i know it's hard i know we don't have enough women in these industries but at least putting that as a target can help us to actually be conscious about looking for them instead of just taking the first 20 people who come in who are probably going to be men and thinking well that's enough we'll close the application date now because we've got 20 applicants but being really conscious to chase and and try and bring in other applicants who are more diverse yeah, absolutely. I love it. I mean, I think, I think you're right. You, you sort of have to set yourself targets um, and approaches which are a little bit uncomfortable. So you're going to have to push yourself well out of the comfort zone to, to achieve the kind of results that we're all hoping to achieve. 
but you know we're we're on a journey like like lots of other companies and um and everything you're saying really resonates with me i don't, I don't really have questions but just to say I'm very supportive of everything you're talking about and, and um, you know, multiplex, we're, we're trying to walk that walk. Loves that, Ben. And just again, to reinforce your point, you know, there are things we can do. Uh, action will speak louder than intention and targets. I live in a country in Norway where we have mandatory targets for um, gender representation or diversity on boards and in management teams, and it's 40%. Um, I was in a company the other day doing this work and actually said to them, it's not equality. 40% is not equality. I'm no mathematician, but that doesn't sound equal to me. We need to be better at not giving the signal to the industry uh, that if I was a woman and I heard a company saying, we're stretching our targets to 40% women, my impression, you know, if I'm a 20-something-year-old looking for a career in oil and gas or in construction, will be thinking, oh, they sound like they're struggling doesn't sound like they've got all their processes together and they're only stretching themselves to 40. I'll go somewhere where that isn't, doesn't seem to be such a stretch and it doesn't seem to be so difficult. So the signal effect on you're giving away the bias already by saying we already acknowledge that we're not gender equal and that we find it a struggle, by the way, and we're giving an, a conservative estimate on how, how many women we can have. It doesn't matter if you don't reach the target, but the signal effect to the industry for people coming in, young talents coming in, is we are equal, we want to be equal, and we need you to come into us to help us to get there. And if you were to turn it on its head, and I was you know, pretty provocative the other day when I said to this very group of senior leaders in a big oil and gas company, Let's turn it around and let's say we only want 40% men. How does that feel? How does it feel to say we only want 40% men? It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel equal. It, it's hugely biased. So let's not do it to women. Let's not encourage women to think that 40% gives them an equal seat at the table. It doesn't. And on the gender pay gap while I'm at it, where I think it's around 13, 40%, you know, there's a simple solution, provocative as this is, we could cut all in, in any company, could, we could cut the male salaries by 14% and it would become equal. Would that feel good? No. But we're talking about asking women to make all the efforts in trying to get a seat at the table, trying to close their pay gap, arguing for their, their competence, arguing for their, their place in the organisation. And I don't think it's fair to put that all on women. I think our systems and processes need to be better at having... 50% targets and clearer pathways for women that aren't about improving themselves. That, that, that's one of the biggest biases we have, by the way, is that women have to work harder to prove themselves than men do in these industries because they're going to be the exception to the rule. And they had better be good, by the way. They had better be the, better than the next man to justify taking a male seat. I'm being very provocative here, but that is the kind of rhetoric you get in these organisations. Dr. Nashita, um, I want to marry her. I, I, you say that. <laughs> no, I, I was gonna say that. <laughs> I, I think everything that you said, but you just make it sound really good. I really hope my boyfriend's listening because we argue all the time about about exactly this, and you make it sound really, really good. I want to put you in my pocket and take you round as like some kind of defense armor with me, and be like, get them, tell them. <laughs> you sing. I've got it. a feeling he's going to be kicking me out of there as soon as he hears that. <laughs> Yeah, that's um, that's amazing, and you're absolutely, completely, one hundred percent right as well. I don't, I don't think it's being provocative. I think it's just being factually correct. You are right. I want you to say that every single week in this room, please and thank you. <laughs> um, so, is there any other? Is there anybody, Sonia? 
we'll, we'll come to you and then Richard will we'll head over to you. Thanks, Michaela. Can you guys hear me okay? I'm just driving and you might hear my sat-nav. Can you hear me? Yeah, perfect. Brilliant. Okay. So um, I just wanted to say I'm not from the construction industry. I, I worked in an industry uh, where you expect a lot of women to be actually on the board, but it was a bit of an old men's club, certainly sort of 20, 25 years ago, uh, where it was purely men at the top and women have had to fight to get to the top. Um, and when the kind of new, fresh kind of leadership teams came in, there was a lot of, no, the only way I can kind of describe it is narcissism, uh, narcissistic kind of personalities that came in. Um, and I've had to, you know, I, I in my 20s, I, I, you know, became a leader um, and I've had to honestly fight tooth and nail, not only because I'm a woman, but because of the colour of my skin, my religion, all of it. I've had, I've had to deal with all of it. Um, so I wanted to ask a question, really kind of turning it on its head, which is how, you know, when it, when it's, you kind of lived with it through your whole career, um, it's kind of, you know, this kind of bias that we've had to deal with, how do we kind of get that out of our heads? It's, I'm not talking from a, maybe I'm talking about a mental health aspect of it. I don't, I don't know how to word it properly. Um, but it, it is, it obviously has affected me because I, I know how much I've had to fight tooth and nail for it. Um, but I just wonder if you could just give me some advice. Thanks, I'm done speaking. I'm sorry about the sat -nav. Thanks, Sonia. Can you just reframe the beginning part of the question? Because I got so caught up in, in what you said at the end. I, I didn't capture the question properly. If you don't mind, just stating it again for me. Yeah, no problem. So it's when you've had to deal with all of this kind of bias through your whole career, how how does a person that's had to deal with it their whole lives deal with it you know from a mental health point of view oh, I I've, yeah that, that's the question i'm asking thanks yeah i mean this is a big question in that it really it really depends on how you're you're letting it affect you now so how is it affecting your life now i'll just give you a, 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 a short story to demonstrate perhaps some of the things you might do when we've grown up, perhaps with biases that we realise have really negative, negatively impacted the way we view ourselves, it might have knocked our self-esteem, it might have knocked our opportunities in life or how much we thought our confidence in, in chasing opportunities, for example, Sonia, I don't know if that's part of what's happened or just generally your outlook on the world can make you feel low, maybe even go as far as make you feel anxious or depressed. Then for me, what's really important to, to do is to make sure that you first of all separate yourself from those biases because let me put it really clearly our beliefs are not truths other people's beliefs don't make them true either beliefs are simply experiences and opinions they're not facts that i believe that i should be the best person for the job doesn't make it right that i am i believe that i'm confident helps me to feel confident but doesn't make it a truth in itself that i am confident so what we believe is not necessarily a truth or a fact. However, and as a psychologist, I will tell you this, if you let go, if you have a look at those biases that you've grown up with and you just literally write them down and put them onto one side and say, okay, if I was going to choose the beliefs that I'd like to have with me today, which ones would I pick and which ones would I leave behind? And then the most powerful thing you can do is to go through, you know, you can use a counselor to do this, you can do this on your own, talk to a good friend is to identify the beliefs you want to have about yourself and let go of the ones you don't and then rehearse them daily. 
there's a neural pathway. I'm going to tell you this because it's not all, you know, woo-woo self-affirmation stuff in itself. There is a science to this. What we say to ourselves, the thoughts that we hold about ourselves affect the way we feel, which affects the way we behave, which affects our results in life. And you can reverse engineer that, by the way. Let me give you an example of that. So if I feel happy, the reason I'm feeling happy is because I'm thinking happy thoughts. If I remember the last time I had a great time, that's going to show up in, in how I feel. I start to feel warm and fuzzy. I'm remembering that great holiday I had, start to feel warm and fuzzy. My body language and my tension all is relaxed and releases. And then I'm going to go out, you know, skipping into the world, feeling better. And I'm going to have better conversations with people. And that's going to produce better results for me. The opposite is true. If I spend my time thinking about negative things, I will start to feel bad about myself. I'll probably avoid doing certain things and that will certainly show up in my results. If we reverse engineer it, which we all do, by the way, in life, think about this. If ever you've, if I'm not a big fitness freak, but let's say I want to go and train and I want to get fit and I've decided that's what I'm going to do, but I'm not feeling very motivated. It's going to hurt. It's going to take a lot of time. I can't sit around waiting to have positive thoughts about it to get me out the door to do it. So reverse engineering can be just take that one first action, take that first step, because what psychology will tell you is the more we change our behavior, the more you can impact your feelings and then your thoughts. If it's tough to start with the thoughts, start with the behavior. So in your case, Sonia, if you've got things that you're not doing or you fear doing or you're uncomfortable doing because of the biases that you've been affected by, break it down into tiny micro steps and take that first step. And the more of these little steps you take, the more likely it's going to affect the way you feel about yourself. And you're going to be able to eliminate some of those negative feelings and thoughts. It's a long answer, Sonia. I don't know if it was too complex or too much or if it missed your question. But no. I'm happy to take it. No, that was great. Thank you so much for that. No, that's absolutely amazing. I think everyone's learning something every time you speak. Um, I'm going to do a little reset because we've had lots of new listeners in the room. So um, before I get to um, yourself, Kate, uh, you're in the Entrepreneurs and Leaders Club. This is the Women in Construction Room. Our guest today is Dr. Nashita. We're talking about uh, bias, unconscious bias, conscious bias. And we are sponsored by the amazing Big Dog. Luke is just underneath me. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I don't know why I laughed when I said that, Luke. Um, but Big Dog do everything that your business needs. Um, 32,000 products. So go check them out on um, links, uh, Luke's bio. Um, over to you, Kate. Hi, guys. Yeah, I'm just um, listening in, really. Um, I'm on a new site at the moment. So literally, I haven't got uh, many questions, but... I'm just on the unconscious bias thing. I'm doing a management course at the moment. And it's not until you start looking at that in great detail that you realise that actually, like, we all we all do that and have that installed in us. Um, and it's, like, different ways of trying to manage how you control that, as we've already stated, this, like, in this room. Um, so I'm kind of working on that at the moment. So it's really interesting to be in the room today and just listen to other ideas and what other people think about it. Um, not just, like, obviously working in construction and being a woman site manager, obviously I face unconscious bias all the time. And sometimes kind of not think you're the victim, but you think it's just headed towards you. But it's not until I've done this management course that I realise that I actually do it myself as well. So it's little things like... Um, 
I'm a captain of um, a football team as well. I play for Bolton Wanderers. And when you look at unconscious bias in um, great detail, um, I've realised that when I've when players have come and approached our club, I've kind of had an input on whether they do join us by what I've actually heard off other other teams. And it's not really until I've done this course that I've realised that I need to stop doing that because I've actually um, stopped people coming to our club through hearing like bad things from elsewhere. And last year somebody joins our club who I wasn't happy about joining and, and had really bad feedback and she turned out to be like one of my really good friends so it's just about how we manage that and kind of nip it in the bud um, and as I say I'm still learning every day and trying to become the best manager I can be um, and yeah just really interesting room sorry to ramble on but I just wanted to give my little input. Kate you're the captain of Bolton Wanderers how am I only just learning this? Oh, Michaela, I'm just using that as an example, but... Uh, I've oh, been, right, I thought you were like, you are No, 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 I was, like, I was, no, no, I was using it as a, an example. Michaela retired um, about three months ago, but, uh, yeah, I was captain for 15 years, so I've been, um, yeah, I, I was I was the captain there. I've been, like, I, I'm, I'm from Liverpool, obviously, but um, I've grew up, like, Manchester and Bolton area and I've got loads of friends. Um, I'm quite, um, yeah, I've played on the Macron and, yeah, I'm quite um, like up there. Like, I've, yeah, I've been in Bolton's paper and all that, Michaela. I'm surprised you haven't even seen me because I've I've been in papers and yeah, I've done lots for the community in regards to football and that, um, and trying to to bring it up and and yeah, yeah. So I was using it. Hey, that's I did, um, I, that's I did, a, a whole separate sorry. show, but I actually yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I can't believe that. Yeah, um, well, no, no, but I, I was a season ticket older than that, and I used to play for Bolton Wanderers Girls, but it's completely off piece. So, I'm going to catch up with you <laughs> offline about that. I can't believe that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, just get in, get in touch and that. But yeah, I'm still doing loads for the community there. But as we say, that's a whole other conversation. But um, but yeah, I've retired now, so my time's a little bit free. But yeah, guys, so sorry about that. Anyway, I'll stop talking football. I could be here all day. Lovely stuff. Thanks, Kate. Oh, thank, thanks, girls. That that was nice. Love that. Um, I've got a quick question before I move on, Dr. Nashita. Um, with, with Kate being a site manager and obviously dealing with uh, conscious bias and sexism, how do we deal being on the receiving end of that without coming across as the angry woman or saying, like, I've done rooms like this, for instance, when I advertise it on LinkedIn, I'm told I'm sexist because it's called Women in Construction. How do we deal with that without coming across being angry or being the way that they'd want us to react? They, I mean, some men. So I want to, yeah, I want to broaden it as well a little bit, Hayley, because when we're talking about unconscious bias, there are at least research has shown at least 14 plus different types of biases so you know we're talking about women today but there are certainly lots of other biases that come into play and we all have some of them you know whether it's age bias or you know nationality bias or political party bias or religion bias I mean there are there are hundreds of them so let's just say that you know the sexist bias is one of them and when we're on the receiving end of a bias that somebody's showing us you know like why for example you know do you have a group I get that as well you know why are you only running groups for for men or women, my response and the best response when somebody's getting into a conflict conversation with you is to show curiosity, because what you're trying to do is figure out where they're coming from. The more 
curious we are asking open questions and just going back and saying so what is it that you're concerned about rather than defending and immediately answering with what you know if they said well why did you do that Hayley why have you got a room on women rather than saying well the reason I have and, and feeling that you've got to defend yourself because that gets you into the argument it raises our emotions doesn't it because now we feel ready to to fight our corner and they're going to do the same they're going to mirror what we do just return to curiosity first and say okay well that's an interesting question what what are your concerns or what are you thinking there bring me into your you know your what your what's in your head what are you what are your thoughts and from that point then you can enter a real dialogue that isn't going to be so heated and emotional so that's the first thing is, is ask a question and, and try and understand and then try and look for the common ground because usually when people are fighting us with you know on a bias they have or one they think we have they're looking for commonality but they can't articulate it they can't say it so i would say you know if somebody says why a construction room for, for women i would say so what is it that you're concerned about well you know men have opinions too you know, in this space, and it's not like all men are bad. And then at least you can enter a conversation and say, absolutely, I agree with you. I don't think all men are bad. And you're very welcome to come into the room because although it's aimed at helping women, who, by the way, research shows tend to be more marginalised in this industry, it's not to say that we're making great generalisations and you're very welcome. Do you see what I mean? You get away from buying into this sword fight that often comes with these biases because people are feeling very emotional about their position on it and then they're going to poke your emotions and you're going to feel emotional about it and off we go uh, with a war of words curiosity open questions great way to start that is absolutely brilliant like best advice ever no one is going to want to get into an argument with me anymore <laughs> like might as well just oh, say well, I've won the argument. how it goes Hayley no it's just absolutely brilliant advice though like you know because I think most of us we get defensive because we're passionate and then that then tapped into a side of you that potentially brings out definitely in me a little bit of aggression because you're like in your head you're thinking what is wrong with you but that comes out as what is wrong with you you know and it, it that spirals into a conversation that you didn't want to have and it makes your blood boil and then you start saying things that you don't really want to say but yeah that's brilliant I think that's a bit of a game changer for all of us um definitely me anyway my kids have got no chance arguing anymore have they can you imagine my poor son i know that that must be very <laughs> very interesting to be fair, very I interesting. Do go straight into mum mode and so i don't always manage this very considered psychological hat when i'm dealing with my 16 year old teenager so just so just for the record yeah i'm not, the... I'm not this considered when i'm you know doing my mum mode it's it comes up probably just like everybody yeah, that's a completely natural thing. It just happens. There's no training taking you out of mum mode, is there? Exactly. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Um, Richard, I see you there. You've been waiting for a while. Have you got something to add or a question? Yeah, I've got a question. Thank you so much. So, uh, yeah, Dr. Nashita, this is fascinating. I have worked in the maritime sector and the yachting sector pretty much my whole career. So another industry that is massively challenged with these uh, these issues uh, there is some work to be done, but I, I have a question around well-being. So a few years ago, I worked on an all-male crew. There was 30 on the crew. Uh, it's a whole other story. It was for a very, very wealthy family. It's a whole other story why it was an all-male crew. But I'm convinced that affected my health. And I would often, I was chief officer, we had a captain. I often had, had debates with the captain 
you know, we need female energy amongst our team. We need female energy on this boat. This, all this male energy is just not good for our well-being. And I'm talking purely from a professional point of view. I'm not talking about personal relationships or any of that. Purely from a professional point of view on board. And I would come home uh, after my stints, and I am convinced that that affected my health. So my question is, was I making that up? And the second question is, is there evidence for how having gender bias or gender balance, I should say, in boards, workplaces, etc., does that benefit people's well-being to have that male-female uh, balance in, in better in place? And that's my question. What a great question. I mean, we talked earlier, didn't we, um, Richard, if you were in the room about the fact that it has an impact on profitability in business, but well-being is a great question. I would argue yes, and I would argue that from a mental health perspective with my background in psychology, because I've also seen groups of pure only women also having an imbalance of that energy where they need the diversity of you know male energy coming in. Now, what I will say is male and female energy isn't owned by men and women, um, respectively. So you can have a very male energy represented by a woman and a very female energy represented by a man based on you know the, their own way of showing up and, and how they communicate and their ability to connect with other people. But generally speaking, and um, what research will show you is that having a balance and, it, you know, some energy from both genders. And we, we also have to remember we're now in a, in a part of our lives where we recognize that genders are not just men and women. We also have other other gender people who identify with other genders. But having a diversity of, of gender in your teams, in your boards, in your management teams definitely affects the way in which people feel about themselves, which becomes mental health, mental wellness. So if I am in a room where I don't feel that my gender, my way of showing up is represented, I'm going to feel more isolated and find it harder to show up. So a balance will definitely improve mental wellness. That's my thought, Richard. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think, uh, if I'm honest, I probably show up a bit more um, with a feminine energy in my leadership. So Possibly that's why I struggled with the all-meal uh, environment. Um, I, I think that's just a suspicion. I mean, it's all anecdotal, and I've, I've thought about this quite a lot, uh, particularly you know, because the maritime world needs to go through this change. And I was thinking, if I was back on that boat again, I would probably be able to pitch it much better to that captain nowadays as to why it would benefit the whole crew to definitely have... Um, more of a balance. I mean, everybody can imagine what happens when you have 29, 30 men together for three, four, five months and go into like a shipyard environment as well. And, you know, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just not pretty really, to be honest. Uh, but I think, um, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's very helpful. Thank you very much. Thanks, Richard. And Dr. Nashtrick, can I just go on from that as well? So in the construction industry, we've got the highest rates of suicide, divorce and mental illness. And I believe it's because of like the, the culture around the construction industry, because it is this male energy. So when we're saying um, we want more women in construction, which obviously we do, we want women in construction to be turning up with the with whatever energy it is. But hopefully with more female energy as well and not like molding into this. We, we've got to be like that, which you touched on earlier. But I wonder if you've seen the mental 
health being affected by the mass and not by the minorities. So we would presume that it would affect women's mental health coming into such a male-dominated industry. But can it have positive uh, reproductions? Can it have positive repercussions on the men as well, introducing a more female energy? Absolutely. I'll just give you a personal experience. When I was a civilian in the in the MOD, the Ministry of Defence, and typically, as you can imagine, it's mostly mostly men in there. But when we entered as women into the room, it was it did shift the conversation. It shifted the behaviour. It shifted the tone of the conversation. And you might argue, well, they were showing a bias that they felt they needed to be kind of softer or more empathic or whatever it was. But, but regardless of what their bias was, it did shift the energy and it did shift the focus. And what they would certainly say, because we would comment on it, you know, that it's it, you can feel the change when you when you walk in the room. And they would definitely say that it does have an impact. The guys would say it does have an impact on calming the situation because one of the things and the military is a bit of a unique culture but there would be a lot of competitive you know fueled high high emotion fueled energy in the in the conversations they would have and one of the things they would find when a woman walked into or was into the conversation is they they reflected more before they spoke they thought a bit more carefully about the words that they chose the attitudes they held even if they were fighting against their natural tendencies and biases, it did give them that, you know, kind of little mirror in front of themselves to think before they act and speak. And I think that is good for the environment that we, in a work environment in particular, and you mentioned, you know, suicide and divorce and all of those things. It's those things happen, or particularly suicide, when we feel alone, and we don't feel there is anybody like us that we can turn to or anybody who really understands us. So the more we're able to create environments where people feel that there is considered empathy in conversations. People think before they speak. They're not just racing in with, you know, bullish attitudes or brutal honesty or any of those things, but they are thinking and taking care of the other person. Then it definitely has a positive impact on the guys as well as the women. I will share with you this, this rule, really, that has come from psychology many decades. It's not my rule, Michaela, but it's one that's been around for a long time and is not really used widely enough, in my view. The golden rule we've all been aware of, which is treat other people like you like to be treated yourself. You know, I like to be treated with respect, so I'm going to treat other people with respect. That golden rule is outdated now. And what the rule that people who are really effective use is called the platinum rule. And the rule goes like this. It's you don't treat people the way you want to be treated. You treat people the way they want to be treated. And so for male-dominated environments, there's a real opportunity for them to think about how would this person who walks through the door, female or otherwise, want to be treated rather than this is our culture and this is how we do things and we want you to kind of align yourself with the way we get stuff done. But actually to be a little smarter than that in thinking about how does this person want to be treated when they come into our space and what can we do to make them feel included. That is a huge, if we can get the needle to move even 1% in that space, we'll have a huge impact on mental health because people feel visible and seen and heard and valued. Yeah, I completely agree. And with that as well, on, on the culture, when, you know, some businesses are like, this is our culture, da, 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 this is what we stand for, blah, blah, blah. And that's it then. It, it, it's cemented and it's not changed. I think business owners should look at perhaps a more fluid kind of culture that can adapt to 
people who are new coming in as well. You know, it's all right to have the foundations of these are our beliefs and this is our mission, but the whole culture surely should be adaptable with the different kinds of people that you take on throughout time. The, the next generation is going to be very different to two generations previous to us. So that all needs to be taken into consideration when you're building your culture out as well for your business. Exactly, exactly. And be really conscious about, you know, we're using this word culture. What is it? What is this thing that we're talking about? What are the expectations inside? What are the rules that we haven't really maybe even paid attention to that people are having to follow? You know, we, I was in another room with you, Michaela, when we were talking about things like the physical environment. Have we really taken care of the physical environment? You know, the type of toilets we're providing, the type of, you know, hours we run the business in, the type of opportunities for leisure activities or, you know, what are, what are we really doing in the physical environment that makes people feel included as well as the way we talk and the things that we say? Yeah, for sure. Um, Hayley, I'm, I'm, I'm going to hand over to you. Yeah, absolutely fine. No problem. Um, touching on mental health again, I know we've talked about it before. The construction industry now is has got quite a, um, a nice movement in mental health first aiders. Um, can you see that becoming a, a broad thing across businesses? Do you think it's important that that's something now that should be considered and rolled out or something that should be separate from work and you should deal with in personal time? What, what's your view on that? I missed the first bit, Hayley. Yeah, so in our industry now, we're seeing a lot of um, mental health first aiders, which to our industry is very new. And I'm wondering if you think that's a good thing to have in the workplace or that's something that people should, you know, if they want to feel like they should deal with out from work and keep in their personal life. How do you think... I I have a very strong view on this because I think, you know, one of the things that we've struggled with in, in... business at work let's call it work is that we've paid attention more to what people do for a living and you know what's their role what are their tasks and we haven't taken enough care of the whole person you know we're not just what we do at work are we we're not just what walks through the door and gets on with the job we have our families we have our friends we have our health we have our interests and often if you've seen somebody who's not having a great day at work it wasn't the work necessarily itself that's causing them to not feel so great it's maybe what's going on in their home environment or their health and unless we pay attention to that at work we're not going to get the best out of them either so I'm a great fan of any initiative which puts a spotlight on mental health at work I think it's critical to see humans as three-dimensional not just robots that come in and get the job done and then go home again we need to value the whole person and actually if you're a leader when you do that when you really build trust through getting to know your team beyond the tasks that they do that's when you get real engagement that's when people are willing to go the extra mile for you because they know that you see them more than just something that does you know does the job and, and does it for you so yeah Hayley I'm a, a huge huge fan of those initiatives there are some initiatives which are a bit lip service we need to watch out for those you know sending surveys around and then and feeling like we've done something but any action-based compassionate uh, activity I think is a great thing yeah I think hopefully as well it'll start to remove the stigma of feeling embarrassed if you feel a bit depressed or anxious or you know you have a, a mental illness I think there's a in men and women there's a huge stigma that is, is embarrassing to admit that and hopefully having visible mental health first aiders who are there to just talk about your welfare and make sure you feel sound at work because you get the most out of someone when they feel their best surely can only encourage people to to lose that idea that it's embarrassing to have a mental 
health issue or illness. Yeah, and I would love to us to use more phrases as well, like mental wellness, because that's also less stigmatizing. Men certainly in the workplace are even less likely to talk about mental health issues than women are. Um, and so, because they don't tend to reach out to other men, women tend to reach out to other women and find that support. But men won't reach out to each other typically in work environments. So any any kind of setup where it's encouraging conversations, where it's removing the idea of illness and problem and talking about wellness makes people feel like it's much more normal. Most importantly, Haley, leaders need to be talking about it. We can't put this all on the employees because if the leaders are marching around saying, well, this is, you know, I don't have mental health challenges or, you know, I don't struggle with my mental wellness. This must be all to do with you guys. They're never going to open up. It comes from the top always. So the messages and the actions need to come from the top leaders. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about role models, isn't it? You know, if you yeah. see someone being successful, you want to be successful. But if that person then openly admits that they at times have had challenges and overcome them, then you feel a bit more like, you're a bit more like them it's normal it's fine (laughs) um you want to see the full thing don't you not not just the outcome and the success so I want to ask you then what are your thoughts on conscious bias um so we've we've touched on this loads in this room over the last few weeks and you know Michaela's quite passionate about the fact that she's openly in in situations like no I want to get a woman into this job I think we need to advertise for women you know there's been so many men that have been in positions that aren't worthy of it but again women have got this pressure that they have to be absolutely amazing and kind of overqualified to be in a role um just to get past their kind of gender first what what are your view on that do you think it's quite damaging to have conscious bias or do you think in um certain groups of minority that it's needed for representation it's such a tricky area, this, isn't it? Because I've yeah. always been a great believer that anybody who gets a job should do some on their merit of, you know, whether they can do the job or not and not, and not necessarily to do with what gender they are. So I've not been a big fan of quotas and that conscious bias of deliberately hiring one gender or another uh, because of because of that. And I've certainly seen, and I'll just put it out there so the men will probably feel relieved, I've seen, you know, not all women make great leaders. You know, so if you go into a conscious bias of making sure there is a woman there, regardless of her competencies and skills, that isn't great either. It's got to be right fit for the job. That said, I can see when you've been marginalised as a group, whether that's through your gender or your race, unless there are there is a conscious, at least communication, if not an actual quota or target to promoting your access to those jobs, you're never probably going to get a foot on the ladder. Somebody's got to have that voice with you and for you to get you even to the stage where you might be able to apply for a job or, or get that promotion. So whilst I'm, I don't necessarily feel that quotas help women because it's sometimes just seen as, well, you got there because you were a quota rather than the fact that you were right for the job. I do think rather than quotas, we should be actively promoting getting women into businesses really at the very start in their careers in and building them and having talent programs which promote women to have the skills they need for the job and then making sure we have a diverse pool to choose from that's more important than quotas for me because you can have all the quotas you like um, but you're not necessarily going to get the right women uh, or men into those seats if it's just based on getting the right right gender in there oh that's brilliant you you kind of say what we want to say but you just articulate it so much better 
So if you wouldn't mind writing that down, I can say that next time. <laughs> I have actually written that down several times. I think I've even written it in my book somewhere. I do feel very strongly about it because it is one of those very divisive issues. There's lots of women who don't like it when I say it because they feel that quotas are the answer. And that's OK. I, I'm OK with having a difference of opinion. But I haven't seen it do women a lot of favours. If quotas were the answer, we'd have the 50-50 around the world. So clearly it's not answering everything. Yeah, absolutely. I know I know you've got to shoot soon. So can you just give us a, a really quick overview of your book and where we can buy it from? Because I'm absolutely positive that everyone who's listened to you today wants to read it and get stuck in. So do you want to give us a little plug? Oh, I'd love to. Thank you for that, Hayley. Well, the easiest way to find my book is on Amazon. It's called The Leadership Pin Code, Unlocking the Key to Willing and Winning Relationships. Pretty much everything I've shared with you today is in the book. It's a handbook. It's not an academic book. It's very practical. It's a simple framework called ABC in there that you'll be able to use the moment you've read it. It's I think you can read the whole book in two hours. So go to Amazon or jump onto my Instagram and, and look on Linktree. You can actually download um, a free chapter there in a little mini course. So Amazon or Linktree on IG fantastic um uh, yeah i'm pretty sure you're going to be getting some orders from today because well I, I i'm definitely in i i want to read it um and it's been amazing thank you so much you've took, taken up so much of your time and it's it's been very very insightful i don't want to let you go i've but I know loved we have it to. thank you you guys have been fantastic and your questions have been brilliant i i'm all in for doing another one so if we didn't get around everybody and anybody has questions uh just yeah michaela over to you if you'll have me back i'd be very absolutely yeah it's been great thanks so much for taking the time to come and speak to everybody today My yeah pleasure. thank you so much everyone and don't forget to uh, while luke's still on stage make sure we're following him get on their instagram if you've got a business they've got something you need Thirty-two thousand products i'm going to be saying that in my sleep um yeah we've um, been looking for some stuff for our clients and uh, putting them in touch with people great company customer services bang on let's go and support them um Thank you all very, very much for being here. We'll be back next week. Oh, no, we won't. We won't be back next week because we're actually going to be eating lunch with Luke. So we'll see you the week after. Um, and, yeah, all have a brilliant weekend. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye, Bye. everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye.